0: I'm so thankful for practical passages of Scripture that we can read and study and apply in our life. Because things that are not practical cannot be applied. It's like giving an Old Testament story. If you just tell the narrative and just tell the story, it's just a nice historical story. But there needs to be an application. We need to make an application for it so we can learn and glean from it. The same is true with the New Testament. same is true with the verse that is before us today. But this verse that's before us today is a very pivotal command. If this, does not, if this is not ingrained in our life, then from a spiritual perspective, we are not going to be all that we ought to be. You know, I would imagine that if you went up to people and you asked them, do you love God? I would imagine the majority of people would say, certainly I love God. I mean, who doesn't love God? But the question is, what does it really mean to love God? And just because we say we love God, does that mean what we do love God? What I've also found, though, out in the world, is the same people that do a lot of praising of God with their lips and saying praise God, or saying that they love God or speaking about God in that way, are also oftentimes the same people that blame God when something bad happens in their life. What does that mean? Does that mean that you love God? Let's look at this passage more deeply now and try to understand what Jesus was talking about. He begins by saying in Mark 12 and verse 30, the very first sentence there, And you shall love the Lord your God. Now understand, this is not a request. This is not advice. This is a hard and fast command. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God. Something about that word love, though. What love are we talking about? Well, obviously, we are talking about agape love. It is commanded love. It is love that is always demonstrated in action. It's the love that is always attributed to God. We know in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, meaning he loved the world to such a degree that he demonstrated that love by sending his son. That is agape love. So when Jesus commands us to love God, the very first thing, by just the definition of the word love, it means by service and sacrifice. It is agape love. And by the way, it is the highest form of love that we can have. Let me ask you a question, though. If you love God, or you say you love God, if something bad happens in your life, I mean, if something really bad happens in your life, will you still love him? What if you pray to God? What if you pray that a loved one would get better? Maybe they're sick. And you, by faith, pray according to God's will. And you ask God that that person would get better. And that person does not get better. That person dies. Will you still love him? That's the point. Will you still love God regardless of circumstances? And by the way, what we're talking about today, we're talking about the kind of love that exists regardless of the circumstances in your life, even if God says no. Let me give you a passage of a great character in the Old Testament that did just that. I love this because really, this is faith in proper focus. Now, the prophet Habakkuk wasn't perfect at the beginning. And when he spoke on behalf of the people to God, he was frustrated. He didn't know why God was not answering his prayer. But by the third chapter, I want to read you something. This is faith in proper focus. This is loving and trusting God regardless of the circumstances in your life. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18, listen to this. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit on the vine, Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd of the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You know what that means? That means that this was a man that says, I don't care what happens to me with the circumstances in my life. It doesn't matter. I'm going to joy. I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'm going to love God. And trust God no matter what. So agape love is the highest form of love. That's true. And it's intellectual love. And it's all of that. And it's intellectual love that always does the proper thing and the best thing. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, no, wait a minute. It's impossible to always do the proper thing and the best thing. Okay? I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about love here. When we demonstrate agape love while we're doing that... We are always manifesting the proper and best thing. We are behaving properly. When we stop doing that, what are we not doing? We're not loving with agape love. Okay. So that's what the word agape love means. And, and um, it is the kind of love that we're talking about. What about when it comes to God, though, with this kind of love? We don't love God with a proper kind of love when our priorities are out of whack. And that simply means this. That means that God has to be number one in your life. I'll tell you this. Life is about prioritizing. Everything's about prioritizing. We make choices and decisions in our life based on priorities. We think, for example, that there might be one thing that's really important. So we're going to put all of our faith in that. We're going to put all of our effort in that. Okay, That's fine, but God has to be number one. You do not love God properly when God is not first in your life. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you don't like your family? Does that mean you don't love your spouse? Absolutely not. What it means is we're going to love our family with all of our heart and all of that too. We're just going to love God more. God has to be number one in your life. You have to love God with your all. Without holding back, giving our best effort. And not giving him second best. All right. What about the word heart? That's the first thing Jesus says. you got to love God with all of your heart. I don't know how many times you've heard me say this, maybe hundreds of times over the years. That when we talk about the heart that's in the Bible, we are not talking about a better felt than told process. Like sometimes people say, well, I know what. that's what the Bible says but I just feel it in my heart. And I have gone to great pains to tell you that that's not what the Bible means and that's not the heart. When the Bible says that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, it's talking about the mind. So when we talk about the heart in the Bible and changing your heart, we are talking about the mind. And again, it is not a better felt than told process. The heart of the Bible, which is the mind, thinks, believes, reasons, and obeys. Okay? So we get all that. That's not this word. It's a whole other word. This word heart here that Jesus says you have to love God with all of your heart, it's something totally different. It is by definition, get this, it is loving God with emotion and affection. You know, there's another passage where this word is used, and it's found in the book of Philemon. You remember that Paul wrote to Philemon, and he was asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus, the runaway slave, right? That's the story. That's the book of Philemon. That's one chapter. That's the book of Philemon. Do you remember what Paul said? Paul said, as I paraphrase, I could have come to you by authority, meaning apostolic authority, and I could have told you and commanded you to forgive Onesimus and take him back, but I'm not doing it that way. I'm appealing to you from as Paul the aged, and I'm appealing to you as one who is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Then he says this, But I want you to forgive him, and then Paul said, This is my whole heart. That'd be like saying this, That would be like me saying, Brother Reuben, I'm asking you from the bottom of my heart. That would be like saying this too, by the way. I love my family with all my heart. That's the kind of heart we're talking about now. This word heart does not mean the mind. Oh, we're going to get to the mind in a minute. But this word heart does not mean the mind. This word heart means loving, emotion, and affection. But let me tell you what we've done. Sometimes we become afraid to show emotion. You know why? Because of the charismatic movement from a historical standpoint that had a tremendous influence and impact on Christian professing religions in the 1950s and the 1960s. And when charismatic movement came in, the idea was, is don't just follow the word of God. Truth doesn't come from the word of God. Truth comes from experience Or truth comes from emotion. So basically this, experientialism came in and people were looking for some kind of religious experience and emotionalism came in and people were guided by their emotions. So basically, here was the deal. This guy thought it was this way. This guy thought it was that way and everybody's right and there is no problem because it's based on experience and emotion. And because of that, because of that, We become a little robotic sometimes and mechanical and don't show any emotion at all. Afraid to show any kind of emotion. Now, I'll tell you this. A religious practice that is based upon emotion is not adequate. But also, at the same time, a religious practice that is robotic and mechanical... With no feeling at all is also inadequate. And you know what? I get to name drop Jesus. I didn't say that. Jesus did in John chapter 4. He said, He said that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in both spirit and in truth. It's both. It can't be based on emotion, but you have to put all of your emotion in it. You know how you love God? You got to pour your guts out, you got to pour your heart out to God. That's every fiber of your emotion, every fiber of your affection. That's what it means to love God with all of your heart. Emotions are important. Let me give you some passages that speak about emotions. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's emotion. Here's another one. Romans 12 and 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's emotion. Philippians 4 and 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Matthew 9 and 36, but when they saw the multitudes, he went and moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. That's emotion. One more though. And we're going, to make a, we're going to make a practical application of this passage. In Psalm 122 and 1, the Bible says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I'm going to tell you, we don't want to have a chaotic distraction when we come into the assembly. And it is true that we don't want to have some sort of irreverent chaos going on. But I like what my good buddy Don King says. I love this. He said, I don't think the Lord wants us to come into the assembly looking like we're going to a funeral. I mean, we just want to just be so solemn like we're going into a funeral. You know, even when during our worship, even when we gather around this table, and we do so in the communion to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that is a solemn time. Obviously it is. And when we reflect back, and the communion is about reflection, when we reflect back on what Jesus did, we are sometimes moved, sometimes with sadness because of what the Lord went through. But make no mistake about it, we rejoice because He's the only hope. And because He did those things and died on the cross for our sins, we rejoice because now we have hope of everlasting life. It's a wonderful time. It's not a chaotic time. It's not an irreverent time. It is not a disrespectful time. But worship is a, fa- is a happy time. Let it be that we would say that I was glad or we were glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I'll tell you this too, folks. In life, as we take the gospel to those that are lost, we have to reach people's hearts. You can't just have cold formality And expect people to be moved. I know that for example. From Acts chapter 2. When the very first gospel sermon was being preached. For the first time. Where it gave man an opportunity to respond. First time in Acts 2. And in verse 36. The Bible says. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly. That God hath made that same Jesus. Whom you have crucified. Both Lord and Christ. The next verse says. When they heard this. They were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What happened? The word of God reached their heart. Got to reach people's hearts. That's why people don't change things in their life either. Also, like Christians sometimes that have things going on in their life and they can't seem to put God first. It's because they can't change their heart. We have to change the heart all of the other things take care of itself if we change the heart. How do we love God? We love God with all of our heart. But number two, Jesus says we have to love him with all of our soul. Now the word soul is a very interesting word. Soul, your soul, is your eternal being. It is something that you have. It is you, by the way. It's your identity. Because when you die... The body's going to go back to the earth. The life force or the spirit will go back to God who gave it. But what will continue to live on is your soul. Have you ever stopped to consider that your soul, your eternal being, will exist always, forever, somewhere? In fact, think of all those that have passed away in in the last... Several years. Think about all those wonderful friends and family members and brothers and sisters in Christ that have died and are no longer here with us. We could start from Phil Kelly where he sat in the front and we can go down each row. We can find members that were once here that have passed away. But we rejoice because they still exist somewhere. And they're waiting for the resurrection to have their resurrected body to go to heaven. The soul lives on forever. So we understand that the soul is your identity. That's who you really are. That's your eternal being. But what's it actually mean, though, specifically in this context, to love God with all of your soul? The word soul is translated as life. In other words, it is life. And the actual Greek word means life and breath. That's an amazing passage. In other words, if I'm going to love God properly, I have to love him with all of my emotion and affection. That's number one. Then that's going to be demonstrated in what? My life. My very life. And you know what also is here? What's uh, implied here also? If I'm going to love God with all of my life, that also means this. I'm going to love God even if it costs me my life. Remember in the book of Revelation? Revelation. Remember the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. You remember that Jesus says, You're gonna have tribulation 10 days, but be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Remember that when we studied that. Unto death, obviously, would mean, if you wanna apply it this way, until you die, obviously. But specifically in the context here, what he was saying is, Love God, serve God, be faithful to God. Even if it costs you your life. Even if it's unto death. Even if you lose your life. That's also what it means to love God with all of your soul. This is sacrificial living. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, let's talk about being transformed. Two things he says. Don't be conformed to the world. Now he's talking to Christians. So he's talking about a growth process here. He says, don't be conformed to the world. But then he says, be transformed. And then he says how? By the renewing of your mind. So in other words, the word of God is the source, and I have to be transformed. You know what the word transformed actually means? It comes from the Greek word metamorpho, and it's where we get the word metamorphosis. And I'm not talking about insects, bugs, and amphibians and all that. I'm gonna give you a second definition of metamorphosis and I'll tell you, it fits. Listen to this it is the changing of a person to a completely different person. That's what it means. To be transformed, I'm gonna change myself into a whole nother self, I'm gonna be different. That's what it is, by the renewing of my mind. Listen, if you are not changing in your life, and you're not changing your life, it's because you are not following the word of God, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Got to do it. Got to renew the mind. Here's another passage, Matthew 16, 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 1 Corinthians 10 and 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. In other words, if I'm going to love God with all of my soul, I must be willing to give everything that I have in my life devoted to his service, even if it costs me my life. All right. Now, I'm going to say this. I I thought of this yesterday. Just kind of hit me. I was looking over this passage. Yeah, sometimes people say that all that really matters, all that really matters really is kind of your opinion and how you feel. And we understand that he says you gotta love God with all your heart. Got all that, got that, all your soul, got that. But if that was the only thing that mattered, then why did Jesus list the mind next? It has to have a basis. It has to have a standard. That's the third thing. I have to love God with all of my mind. That has to do with intellect or knowledge. To love God as we should, it must be done through knowledge. If we are biblically ignorant, we have some work to do. Now, I'm going to tell you, there is a difference between being ignorant because you just don't know. And when I say that word in that capacity, that is not a criticism. That is not a put down. There are things in my life that I am ignorant of. Why? I just don't know them. Nothing wrong with that. And there's times also in a Christian's life when they are ignorant because they just don't know. When a babe in Christ comes from the waters of baptism and rises to walk in newness of life, there's going to be a period of time when they're going to be ignorant of some things. But there's a difference between being ignorant, meaning you just don't know yet, And being willfully ignorant because of willful rejection. Big difference. Now, the only way that I can love God with all of my mind has to be when I gain knowledge of his word. That's the only way. That's the only way. Romans 10 and 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Listen to this also, Ephesians 4 and 18. This is an example of willfully ignorant. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Remember a few years ago, I preached a sermon, I talked about the word agnostic. Okay? heard somebody use that the other day again. And the word agnostic, it's not an atheist because an atheist boldly says there is no God. And the Bible says that a man that says there is no God is a fool. So there are other people that don't want to be that brazen and bold. So what they do is they say, you know what? I don't know. I'm just going to say I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say I don't know. I'm an agnostic. In other words, it is a willful choice. And I'm going to say that I'm in the category of a not-knower. I'm going to ride the fence. That's what I'm going to do. Remember when I told you what the Latin equivalent was for the word agnostic? The Latin equivalent is the word ignoramus. Yeah. You see, there's a difference between being ignorant because you just don't know yet and being an ignoramus because you've made a choice. Why is willful Ignorance, wrong. Why is willful ignorance a sin? Willful ignorance is a sin because willful ignorance is always attached to willful rejection. Always. But if I'm going to love God as I should with all of my mind, it's going to take knowledge. It's going to take knowledge. In other words, the more knowledge that we get, the more we'll be able to love him with our mind. In Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. So to love God with all of our minds, we have to study Acts 17 and 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out that these things were so. One more passage along this line, 2 Timothy 2.15 from the King James. Study to show thyself approved by God, a worker that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Our minds have to be filled with truth. Now, I had this on a screen. I had this on a slide where it's going to emphasize the point. Now I just got to tell you what the point is. It's going to emphasize the point. Don't ever let somebody tell you there's no such thing as truth. Don't ever let anybody convince you Or talk you into the fact that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Because there is. And if two people disagree on a a biblical subject. A foundational biblical subject. It means one of them is wrong or they're both wrong. I don't understand it. We understand that. You know when I was in school. You take an exam. And you get an answer there. Is it true, false? True? Nope. Got it wrong. You was false. I never had a teacher say to me, oh, Frank, what's well, okay because you see it that way. Maybe you felt it that way. That's okay. So everybody's right. False or true, everybody's right. It doesn't make any sense. And in no other aspect of life do we ever find that. But when we come to religion sometimes, that's where we find that. It's okay. You can believe that and I can believe this. It's okay. We're both right. No. Here's the point. If two people disagree on a foundational biblical principle. It can only mean that one of them are wrong. Or they both are wrong. But they can't both be right. Let me give you some Bible now. Of how we are commanded to be filled with truth. Second John verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. As we have received commandment from the Father. Third John verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren are and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. So, we can't love God with all of our mind without understanding and knowing truth. Number four, with all of our strength. Now, you can read scholars and they will pretty much all agree that we're not talking about physical strength. When it talks about strength... We are talking about spiritual strength, okay? So you're going to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. What kind of strength is it? Well, like I just said, spiritual strength. But it's spiritual strength that is manifested and demonstrated in action. It has to be. It's demonstrated in action. And the action is this. Your abilities... It's your talents. That's number one. You demonstrate that with your talents. I don't have time to go into Matthew chapter 25. And you all know about the story when Jesus gave the parable of the talents. We understand that. We touched on talents a little bit last week. But let me just say this. The people that were there, the the, the characters in the story. This is what Jesus said. One got five. One got two. One got one. Okay? So whatever you had. What was required? What was required was their best. The guy that had five, he got 10. The guy that got two, he got four. The guy that had one, he got nothing. You know, the Lord would have been happy if that man would have got two, even though it's only two. In other words, it's everything you have. Remember. Remember our goals here. It begins with behavioral goals. That's personal goals. That's when you take an introspective view of yourself and you work to get better. Then what happens? You understand, here are my talents and abilities, and then you go fill a function. And when we have members of the body of Christ fulfilling behavioral goals and functional goals, guess what we're doing collectively together now as the body of Christ? We are achieving our congregational goals, too. Everybody has a part, every, a part in all of that. Everybody has that. Our abilities, our talents must be used for the Lord. I want to make one other little point about talents. I have seen people, I've seen young men that really got up. They wanted to speak so bad. Some wanted to be preachers, some wanted to be congregational teachers. And they had the courage to do it. And they got up and they struggled. A little bit. They didn't have a whole lot of what you would call maybe natural ability, but what did they do? They kept working at it and working at it and working at it and working at it and working at it. And you know what happens? Ten years later, hey, I ain't the same guy. I ain't the same guy at all. Twenty years later, not the same guy. There are some abilities that you may have that are not readily apparent, and you will only know if you try. You will only know if you go to work. So the first way we have to demonstrate our strength with all of our strength is in our abilities. Secondly, in our giving, and that does include money. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 2, and then also verse 5. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and the deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. And not only as we hoped, but as they first gave to themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Another passage, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 and verse 12. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 12. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. We have to give of our We have to give of our abilities. We have to give of our money. All that stuff. It's every part of us. And finally, number three, this is the hard one. We have to give of ourself. Got to give of ourselves. You ever have somebody that you love, like a, one of your children or grandchildren, and it's your birthday, and they give you a gift? What would you rather have? Would you rather have them buy something and give it to you? Or would you rather have them make it and give it to you? I think everybody would rather have them make it. Or what about this? What if I gave Taylor when she was little some money to buy something for Tina? Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. But what if it was her own money? What if she got that money? What if she earned that money, spent her own money? She gave it herself. The gift just became Better. Sometimes giving of ourself is difficult, but that's the greatest way you can give to God. That's the greatest way that you can demonstrate your love for God by way of all your strength is to give of yourself. In Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, get this, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Colossians 4 and verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those that are outside, redeeming the time. What does God want? He wants your time. He wants your time. There's 168 hours in a week. We give him so little. There's 168 hours in a week. I saw a preacher one time get on a board, and he went 168, and he said, well, you, you know, broke down what we have to do, okay? And... In all of that, in that week, he put down eight hours of work and, well, you got to sleep. You got eight hours of sleep and you got, there were still a ton of hours left. And sometimes we say we just don't have time. Loving God with all of your strength is to love him with your time. So, in conclusion, we need to understand that we cannot love God as we should unless we love him with all of our heart. And remember, loving him with all of our heart means with all of our emotion and all of our affection. What kind of love? It's agape love. It's commanded love. So I need to have commanded love for God with all my heart. Number two, with all my soul. If I feel that in my heart and with all my emotions and all my affections for God, you know what's going to happen? It will demonstrate that love through my very life. That's the soul. It's going to be based on something, too. Not just my own wishes, it's going to be based on the word of God. And I'm going to be transformed and I'm going to be changed and I'm going to be willing to submit myself to God and love him with all of my mind. And all of that leads to the next part. With my abilities, with my money, with my time, with my efforts, that's the strength part. And I will love God with all of my strength.